0: Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 132, September 25th to October 1st, 1863. Last week, we had the first two days of the Battle of Chickamauga. This week, we will reach the exciting conclusion to the second largest battle of the war in terms of casualties. Now, it may surprise you to know that this is the third-largest battle in terms of percentage of casualties. Obviously, Gettysburg is first, but Stones River actually ranks second. If we recall, the numbers at that battle were less. Bragg's army had been significantly reinforced here in 1863. But enough with statistics. Let's get back to the action. Of course, we will have a Patreon episode here posted And uh, it's hard to believe we're already getting into October, but we're going to have a memoir review, and that will be a member of Custer's Cavalry. So we've had some actions already, and we will have some future actions as well as we get into 1864. So it will be a good memoir to go through and talks about some cavalry, and that's probably something we have not been exposed to in some of these memoirs as of yet, uh, at least not in depth. So if that sounds like something that would interest you, that will be posted ...here to the Patreon shortly. There's a link in the show description, and those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. The first thing I really want to do today, though, is describe the battlefield. And we did a little bit of a description last episode, and uh, that might have been a little bit confusing... ...but probably does well to pair it with a map. I think the final day at Chickamauga is a little bit easier to understand... And uh, we kind of have a north to south configuration. Uh, The Lafayette Road is obviously very important. That's what we talked about last week. And it's what the Confederates want to use to cut off uh, the Army of the Cumberland from their supply base back in Chattanooga. So we have that running relatively north to south. And the Union Army, for the most part, is going to be uh, aligned north to south uh, with Thomas there at the top. And then we have uh, Criniton and McCook, and they've been kind of filtering in reinforcements uh, to Thomas, and we'll get into why that's going to be important here in a minute, uh, but they're kind of spread out to the south. Now, there is a bulge in the line, it's relatively along the Lafayette Road, but there is a bulge in the line, and it's going to be around the Kelly Farm and Field. And so we kind of have this uh, crescent sort of formation here with some of the Union troops directly. Behind them, behind the Kelly Field and Farm, there's going to be a hill, and it's going to be Snodgrass Hill. There's going to be a Snodgrass Farm and a horseshoe-shaped ridge, and then that kind of goes back toward uh, Missionary Ridge as well. So that is actually going to play a pretty large part in the action as well. Now, as far as the Confederates go, we're going to have Longstreet commanding relatively the wing command to the south and Polk commanding the wing command to the north. Uh, so we have it kind of divided up that way. Forrest and his cavalry will be to the north as well. And they will be putting some pressure on uh, their two McDonald farms. And That's actually, if you go to Chickamauga today, that's where the Modern Day Visitor Center is relatively. Uh, so they will be putting pressure uh, up there. So it gives us a pretty good idea of the battlefield. And obviously, uh, we have some of the same landmarks as we did the day before so keep those in mind as well as things drew to a close on the 19th both commanders would decide what to do on the 20th rosecrans was confident enough to receive an attack from the enemy at stones river bragg had withdrawn after a stalemate so it was likely maybe he would perform in the same manner as he called most of his division commanders to his headquarters at the widow glenn house there was the potential for a problem. In one of the rare instances of the war, the Confederates would hold a numerical advantage. Sheridan, amongst others, would be dissatisfied. As McCook sang a popular tune for the officers and Thomas slept, the Army of the Cumberland would resolve to stand. Thomas would command the left with McCook the right and Crennidon in reserve. Preparations were well underway for a potential enemy offensive action. Bragg would wish to continue the assault on the next day rather than retreat. He would reorganize his army into two wings, one commanded by Polk and the other by Longstreet, who would finally arrive on the battlefield. This may not have been the wisest call given his men were already engaged with the enemy. Now, in a perfect world, Longstreet would hold down the right flank while Polk would take the left, but due to the nature of the battle as it unfolded on the first day, or second day technically, right, it was quite the opposite. Polk would be leading the attack, jumping off at day dawn, whenever that is, according to the army commander. And I'm not actually kidding, that's actually what his orders say, day dawn is when he's supposed to attack, so uh, if you know what day dawn is, then by all means you can uh, email into the podcast here, because I'd be curious to know... Exactly what time Day Dawn is. Curiously though, unlike Rosecrans, Bragg would not have a conference with all of his officers. Instead he would tell Polk and Longstreet individually. Hill who was the same rank as Polk, but placed in his wing, would not get the message from the army commander. Here we're going to have some of the army politics at play, because Polk does not get in touch with Hill, and Hill likewise does not try too hard to find his commander. Because of this, the attack does not start at dawn. Polk, who is accused of sitting down and reading a newspaper, will try to order in Claiborne and Breckenridge without consulting their direct superior, Hill. The bad luck for the Confederates is that Hill is there when the orders get to his two division commanders. D.H. Hill will give several excuses, just as he had done at Macklemore's Cove, and delay the attack. Most notably, his excuse is that his men were drawing rations and would not be ready to attack for two hours. It is possible that if Claiborne had not made his night attack, these troops would have been rested and ready for the planned assault. And that's when you have sort of have the double edge of the sword that uh, St. John Little says to Claiborne that action now is going to save some time tomorrow. Well, obviously, it's uh, kind of backfiring here. It's not the going in the direction that he probably meant that statement. This would be unfortunate for the rebels because the Union troops had settled in and were more than ready as the morning progressed on the 20th. All along their line, a crude breastwork was constructed. They would not be without their problems, though. Just as Bragg was still wishing to turn the enemy flank, so too would Thomas grow concerned about the safety of his. He would request that Negley, who had fallen in the relative center of the line, shift to the north. He would begin to do so without proper support taking his place. Longstreet, you see, was reorganizing his command to be better suited for an assault. As part of this, he had deployed skirmishers who were engaged with the enemy. Because of this, Rosecrans would jump on the gap being created in the line that was already thin. Negley was not allowed to move, but one brigade under Beatty North. Beatty would be strung incredibly thin around the McDonald farm on the north end of the line. Negley would then attempt to move again with Wood taking his place. The sometimes manic Rosecrans would reportedly jump at Wood, who, if you recall, had already been in trouble during the campaign to take Chattanooga. It was hard to tell exactly what was said, as those who supported Rosecrans would deny the heated nature of the exchange, but the conversation would have effects on the upcoming events. Wood would have his brigades under Harker and Buell in line, also supported by Barnes. Negley would then finally be allowed to move north, but would not be left alone for long. Having finally made themselves ready, the Confederates would begin their attack around 9.45 a.m. They will attack in, and you guessed it, an in-echelon fashion, first led by Breckenridge, supported by Armstrong's cavalry to the north, then down the line, Claiborne's division being the next in place. This would mean that two brigades would slam into Beatys, which had puffed out in a large skirmish line. The attempted ruse would not work, with Adams and Stovall breaking the line and moving into the area around the McDonald farm to reform. Unfortunately for Helm and his orphan brigade, they would run directly into fixed positions manned by Edward King and his regulars, as well as Scribner's reform command. Both groups were in need of a good performance, having been routed earlier on the 19th. Perhaps this was on their minds as they poured in fire on the Kentucky and Alabama troops before them. The orphans would charge and reform several times, a testament to their bravery. Helm would be wounded mortally as a result, a bullet piercing his abdomen, one of the 500 casualties his brigade suffers. I have an account of the attack here. Finally, at about 930, the order was given to advance and attack the enemy. Soon we were up with our skirmish line. They fell into their position with the regiment and the fighting began. We were in range of the enemy's small arms, and artillery was sending a regular hail of shot and shell at us. We had been ordered to reserve our fire until we were in close range. A perfect shower of grape shot tore through our ranks. The enemy were pouring a volley of many balls upon us. We fired a volley and rushed upon them. They were posted behind breastworks made of logs, and there was so much undergrowth in the woods, we were charging through that artillery, could not get in our position to fire upon them. On the left of our line, the Confederate forces had not come up, so the enemy to our left poured their fire into us, as did those directly in our front. We would load our guns as we advanced and fire, but our men were falling fast. About this time it seemed to me a bushel of grapeshot from a battery just in front of us came pouring down upon me, cutting down the bushes and tearing up the ground all around. I was running towards the enemy, as was our whole line. A grape shot struck me in the groin, it in some manner weirded me clear and threw me flat on my back. I thought my entire leg was torn off, but I looked down and saw my leg was not gone. I felt with my hand and found no blood, but there was a grape shot in my pocket. It had force enough to tear through my pants, but struck the steel clasp of a pocketbook which I had in the pocket of my pants, and in this it stopped. The clasp was doubled around the ball. I found I could limp along and soon caught up with the regiment, which was now within 30 yards of the enemy's breastworks, and giving and taking death blows, which would last but a few minutes with utter annihilation. So this gives us a good account of just the ferocity of the fire that the Kentucky troops were receiving. And obviously we have those who might be lucky, like this particular individual who uh, gets saved by something on his person. While Adams and Stovall reform, a brigade under Groves will be dispatched to the assistance of Thomas's worried flank. Groves will run into the buzzsaw of the Confederate brigades now poised to roll up the Army of the Cumberland. Unfortunately for the Confederates, only two brigades would not be able to do so alone. To compound matters, Daniel Adams is wounded and has to yield his command. This is part of the course for Adams, who was wounded at Shiloh and Stones River. Still, his brigade would persist, by this time facing the reinforcing brigades of Timothy Stanley and Vanderveer. Vanderveer had been spared by Brannan, who unbeknownst to Thomas, had moved into line. Both would move from the Kellyfield location and deal swift blows to their southern attackers, driving them back toward the McDonald farm. Adams would be captured by the oncoming Yankees, an event captured by a federal officer. We took up a new position in Kelly's Field just to the left of the road, where we concealed ourselves in the underbrush and awaited the oncoming of the Confederates, who were now flush with victories. When within two or three rods of our line, we opened fire upon them, their front rank went down, their rear rank was nearly put out of business, and we captured nearly all the balance, including General D.W. Adams, who was in command of the rebel forces making this charge. Our regiment captured General Adams, yet there are no less than six regiments who claim the honor of having captured him. But, as the best proof would say... I had his sword. Other members of our regiment had his field glasses and revolvers, belt, and so forth. I carried his sword on the charge. We now made to the McDonnell Field, going into this charge with a sword in each hand, looking as savage as a meat axe. This is also interesting because there are several accounts, not just at Chickamauga, but other battles during the war where regiments are going to dispute whether uh, so-and-so was first or so-and-so did this. Uh, so we have some firsthand. Accounting of that, and then we also have a pretty, uh, seem to be cut and dry example uh, of proof that it was in fact, and I believe this would be, Captain Hicks of the 11th Michigan who claims this honor. Breckinridge would look in vain for reinforcements, calling on Walker's already battered core. In the meantime, Negley would not be allowed to complete his northern movement, instead being called upon to form a new defensive line on high ground near Snodgrass Farm so we can bookmark that for now. Clayburn meanwhile is going to delay his attack, which in part allowed for a little more shuffling along the line. In terms of success, his would be far less promising than Breckenridge's division. His three brigades would advance in line in the vicinity of Kelly Field, first led by Lucius Polk. Polk would try to connect with the southern end of the attack by Breckenridge. His brigade would be stymied by the same breastworks. Those who wrote about the battle mentioned how the federal artillery cut swaths through the attacking butternuts. Rebel artillery, meanwhile, was not in a good position to support any attacks, which was a common theme. Polk would try to hold on, his men finding cover where they could. His lone brigade would have guns trained on him from three or four of the enemy brigades, including that of Hazen. Sam Wood, meanwhile, would veer his brigade further south, creating a gap. He would lose cohesion, his regiments attacking pell mell. Deschler, who had been on the southern edge, would move north to try to plug the opening. This was all well and good because AP Stewart had been sort of wedged into line and had his brigades in front of the Texans. Stewart, for his part, would begin his attack as well. Thomas's line was not really even in this location there being a possibility to flank the northern bulge commanded by Turchin. This would be easier said than done, however, with the rebels getting inflated. Wood's men would suffer as a result. Stewart's brigades under Bate and Brown, who had been heavily engaged in the previous day, would fare no better to the south trying to attack along with Deschler's Texans. There had been a little success in breaking the federal line by Stewart's brigade, but this was quickly mopped up. Claiborne would try to get his last brigade to hold its ground for as long as possible with deadly effects. Deschler would be hit with a 3-inch shell, the projectile passing through his chest, killing him instantly. Now it may surprise you to know that while these attacks were listed as being quite fierce, they were fended off with relative ease. Remember that Groves and his brigade was shifted away to deal with Adams and Stovall to the north, which gives you an idea that they were not needed. In the meantime, D.H. Hill would attempt to see the same success on the left flank of the Army of the Cumberland. Oddly enough, in a day where supporting attacks were lacking, D.H. Hill would have an argument with Walker when he suggested it. Polk would be non-existent, just as Buckner was, but Hill would get his way and have the Reserve Corps. Walker's division, now joined by the last brigade under states' rights gist, would attack over the same ground as Breckenridge. Claudius Wilson, and Matthew Ector had been roughly dealt with. Gist and his men were fresh, but they would attack over relatively the same ground that the Orphan Brigade moved over, and likewise would suffer. Peyton Colquitt, who had taken command of the brigade when Gist was elevated to division lead, was killed in the process. Little and his division moving to the north would also be repulsed, but not before Govan and his Arkansas regiments found themselves in the rear, where Stovall and Adams had been. The small brigade, who had already been used up the previous day, would not be able to drive home the advantage. Things were not looking good for Bragg and his Army of Tennessee. A general assault was called for, but even then, it was looking like Rosecrans had a strong enough line. Something had to change if it was to be successful. So just to recap, we have these actions to the northern end of the line, and uh, that part is holding. Thomas is going to be constantly... Asking for reinforcements, though, so it's going to be weakening other spots of the line, and we're going to get then to that very shortly. However, we do have some opportunity here as you're maybe looking at a map or just listening to the narrative here. There were some Confederate units that were able to swing around, you know, cross the Lafayette Road and swing around, and they actually got into a position where they could have been moving down the line. And uh, we know from other battles during the war, this is constantly an objective and constantly something that Civil War generals want to do but they just weren't supported effectively. And likewise, all these attacks along the front, they're not being conducted in the same time or the same manner. So we had Clayburn kind of pause. You know, he doesn't move up. That kind of leaves Helm to take fire from all the guns that the Union Army can muster in that particular area. Uh, So it is not well-coordinated, these attacks. And that's why, even though strong position, so maybe a coordinated attack would have failed, but that's why they're failing so far. Despite there being general success so far for the Union, something would change, and it would happen at exactly the wrong time. Thomas had been begging for reinforcements all day, and as we know, there was a piecemeal attempt to satisfy him. Thomas Wood's division, supported by an additional brigade commanded by Cindy Barnes, was ordered around this time to close up on Reynolds. The problem with that was that John Brandon's division sat between Woods and Reynolds. Brandon had been ordered to move out of line, where it was not supposed he was in the first place, but he did not go. Wood could have sought for an explanation from headquarters, but he did not. If you recall, Wood had received some type of reprimand from Rosecrans, and he had been rebuked by Crenadin during the push on Chattanooga. Neither of those two officers were near him, so he showed the orders to Alexander McCook. McCook would agree with the conclusion. Wood would move out of line behind Brannon and then form in the rear of Reynolds. See, verbiage is always very important. So forming up when there is no weight that you can slide down, there's a unit in the way, so you have to form up on Reynolds, so he's going to move to Reynolds' rear. Jefferson C. Davis would move into line in the position Wood occupied around the Brotherton Field. His brigades would start to move out. George Buell would grow concerned as his comrades move away to the north. His 100th Illinois had moved into the Brotherton Field to skirmish with the enemy. What they found was greatly concerning. James Longstreet had ignored Bragg's request to attack right away. He had carefully formed his men into several lines for a powerful thrust. Bushrod Johnson would be in the lead, followed by Hood's division commanded by Law, with the two brigades from McClaws trailing, a total of eight. It would be noted the line in which Wood was occupying was not the best. It was at the bottom of a rise, meaning an enemy attack would be right on the defenders before they could respond, perhaps getting off a volley at best. Regardless, Johnson would advance in the exact moment the switch was happening. The 100th Illinois would be overwhelmed quickly. While McNair's attack closer to Poe Field would run into a buzzsaw in the form of Brandon's brigade, Cyrus Suggs, commanding Gregg's brigade in his absence, and Fulton would exploit the large opening in the line. Having penetrated, Suggs would then turn on the position of Connell, who would briefly hold before retiring. Davis and his regiments would try to stand, but they would also be overwhelmed quickly. If you remember, his men had also been engaged the previous day, and his command was already fairly small. Samuel Beatty as well, would be brushed aside. Brannon would realize his flank was completely compromised and attempt to meet this threat with Croxton's command. Croxton would refuse his flank to meet Brock Benning's oncoming Georgians. The two lines would exchange fire, but Croxton would be wounded in the exchange. His replacement would send two regiments charging at the Peach Staters, who would collapse, having suffered at the hands of Wilder the previous day. Benning would be as exasperated as Van Cleve had been on the previous day as a result. But the danger was real, and the Federals would withdraw. Reynolds in the meantime would start to reorient his regiments. Confederates at this point were spilling into Dyer Field. Major Mendenhall was trying to form a grand battery, just as he had done at Stones River. It would be here that the Federals were trying to form a kind of patchwork defense. But the big question was, to which direction should the Confederates drive the enemy? Already, Johnson and Law were moving brigades north. They would run into Thomas there. But if Bragg's objective was to stop the Army of the Cumberland and their attempt to get back to Chattanooga, then this was a problem. Might make more sense to take care of all the troops to the south, and then that way you could then turn back to the north. You're effectively dividing the army, uh, but obviously Bragg is pretty far away. He He's not on the field, so he's not really understanding exactly what's happening. And as we're going to see, the Confederates are going to have even more problems when it comes to their attack and the command structure. But the Union Army was not without its own problems. The right and center had been significantly reduced in their manpower. Phil Sheridan was the only division left belonging to Alexander McCook. He would rush to the southern end of Dyer Field to create a defensive line. Wilder was also told to come up on the flank near the Widow Glen house. William Lytle and his command would try their best to create a line along with Luther Bradley's brigade, commanded by Colonel Nathan Walworth. Bernard Leibold and his men were already in motion when Hindman's Confederates appeared before them. Davis's fugitives from Hegg's brigade as well as William Carlin's would then appear. Days and his Alabama regiments had added pressure to put them to flight. McCook would then order Leibold into action, effectively being a sacrifice for the remaining troops to form a defense. Now, this would have been a necessary cost of war, potentially, in this situation. If you had paid attention to the Gettysburg narrative, then it is not without its fair share of spoiling charges that saved the Army of the Potomac. But McCook would not even let Leibold deploy from column, meaning his flanks would be wide open for exploitation. Sheridan would be salty about this after the battle, seeing this as an unnecessary action instigated by McCook. We know that, at least in our narrative here, then McCook and Crinnenden have been kind of skating by, and they're really going to, at least in this crisis situation, display that they're probably not the right guys for the job, and we'll get into all that, of course, in the aftermath. Lightbolt's command ran directly into Zach D's and his Alabama regiments. Interestingly, they were also joined by Oates and his 15th Alabama, who had peeled off from their Army of Northern Virginia division. It did not take long for Leiboldt to be quickly overwhelmed and scattered. Lytle would next meet the men under Dees, who had supported Johnson in his attack and now was slowing down having met with Leiboldt. Patton Anderson's brigade would likewise move up to form on the right of Dees, facing against Walworth. Sheridan's brigades would bravely hold their ground at what would become known as Lytle's Hill, but Hyman's division would prove to be too much. I have an account from Lytle's brigade. Wood's division was now ordered from our left to reinforce Thomas. This left a space of a mile or more between Thomas's right and our left. Our division now was ordered to move by the left flank to close up on this gap. This was about 11 o'clock a.m. At this moment occurred one of those little incidents, or Freaks of Fortune, which so often, in a large battle, suddenly turned victory into defeat, and sometimes a rout. For the same moment that Wood's division was ordered to reinforce Thomas, and we ordered to move by the left and close the gap thus formed, the enemy made a furious charge on our right. We were attacked by Longstreet's famous corps, just fresh from their fields of triumph on the Potomac. They had yet never known defeat. We double-quick to gain a ridge, and form our line to meet the shock but too late the bullets began to whiz and the men commenced falling long before we could reach the desired point the second and third brigade first met the shock but were quickly forced back our brigade now wheeled into line as we advanced up the hill we met the second brigade coming back in confusion general sheridan spoke cheerfully telling us to keep cool and we would surely check them but i almost ashamed to own that i thought far different for the 2nd Brigade was, the best and largest in our division, composed entirely of old troops which had fought at Pea Ridge, Perryville, and Stones River, and until then had never been repulsed. The Rebs were flushed with success. We gained the crest of the hill and laid down, uncubbed the Rebs yelling like demons, received them coolly, and our fire soon checked them in front. But soon a more serious difficulty arose. They were flanking us and we had nothing to oppose them. Slowly we fell back to the front of the hill. And then rallied and charged up the hill, but were again flanked and forced by the sheer power of numbers to fall back. This time they planted their colors on our line in our rear of our regiment. Six times in succession did our regiment rally and charge up the hill, and was as often compelled to fall back by their flanking us. Oh, if we had but a single division to protect our flanks, we could have held them. We find no trouble in forcing them back in our front. When we were rallying the sixth time Old Rosie, McCook and Sheridan rode up in our rear, and Rosecrans said charge them once more for Old Rosie boys. But it was no use. We had done all that we could, without support. And now they began to get their artillery in position on the hill, and Grape and Canister began to fly thick about us. But this was not our greatest danger. They had pushed a strong column of troops forward on our left, and had completely cut Davis and our division from the rest of the army. There was no course left but to retreat or be taken prisoner. Just as a quick note, it is quite difficult to read some of these accounts. Uh, We have good accounts from the East, and uh, obviously we do have just general accounts from the West, but even these Western theaters, it's it's often with individuals, as you can imagine, who are a little bit uh, backwoodsy, so to speak. So uh, their spelling in certain cases and their grammar is a little bit tough. So if it sounds... I think a little bit weird sometimes when I'm reading some of these, uh, it's because uh, that's that's unfortunately how they were written. During this mad struggle, Lytle was wounded once and then hit in the head, the ball passing through his teeth and out his neck. I have an account from Lytle's staff officer. The line was in front of us as we sat on our horses, but it was thin and losing men momentarily, giving our commander increasing anxiety. Sent one of his staff to urge the colonel of a regiment still at the front "'of the slight rise to bring up his men. "'He directed another to bring up a section of the battery "'and place it by hand in the line. "'This was done, "'diminishing the fire at once in our front, "'which had been bad enough, "'the men only being held in their alignment "'by the presence of General Lytle, "'for if he could stay, "'they were ashamed to retreat. "'I have heard that a moment before the fire opened "'on the men who first formed in the line on the ridge, "'he had said, "'Men, we must make a stand right here. "'We can die but once.' Let us die right here. It would seem as if it was true, and that I did not hear it, that he felt someone had blundered, and it was their duty to hold on. Every man must have felt, as I did, that we were fighting desperate odds, and yet those men stayed as if every man had grasped the meaning of their general. The fire reopened, and looking at one of us, he said, For God's sake, bring up another regiment." I thought he was looking at Lieutenant Bull, but Bull must not have heard him, and he looked at me near him. He had just a moment before said to me, as he leaned towards me, Pirtle, I am hit. Are you hit hard, General? My heart was in my mouth, and I was hardly able to speak. In the spine, I have to leave here. You stay and see what all goes on. I answered, I will. Then came his call for another regiment. As I have said, I looked at the general and, saluting with my sword, galloped down the hill, where Colonel Silas Miller of the 36th Illinois was trying very hard while on foot to rally his men in order to lead them up the slope to reinforce the line. Doing all I could to help Colonel Miller, I held my horse's bridle in my left hand, urging the soldiers forward by all arguments at my disposal. Amid the increasing confusion, time shells exploding almost simultaneously by my horse's side, making him frantic, perhaps wounding him. "'because he reared and broke loose from me "'and galloped out of sight in the melee. "'Just at this instant, "'I saw the big solar horse the general had been seating on "'rush riderless down the slope, "'and I knew the general had fallen from him and was dead. "'I started towards the spot where I left him, "'making my ascent in that direction, "'but the men gave way in a crowd "'and carried me along with them "'so I knew my commander was gone.' Mortally wounded, the poet general would be left on the battlefield, per his wishes. Patton and Anderson knew Lytle before the war and would place a guard over his body. In the meantime, Sheridan would have to see his men retreat and attempt to reform. Dees and Anderson would suffer heavily during their attacks, which meant a lack of pursuit. Manigault, the last of Heinemann's command, would appear on the left, just in time to be hit by Wilder and his Spencers, who would tear up his Alabama brigade. Preston's division had not advanced in this sector, but Robert Trigg at least had his brigade in place to dissuade the Lightning Brigade from finishing off Manigault. Wilder would then wish to potentially tack up the axis of the Rebel Assault. He may well have at the very minimal caused havoc in the Southern ranks, but Charles Dana was there and see to it that this would not happen. Now we've heard of Charles Dana before, and he was a bit of a dramatic. At this point, McCook and Rosecrans had left the field. McCook had actually drawn a pistol on a civilian, demanding he take him safely away from Confederate lines, which should tell you where his headspace was. Dana reported to Wilder that he thought the commander dead, and wished for an escort off the battlefield. Dana had no authority to make an order, and Wilder could have ignored it but his crack brigade would ride off the field, leaving Thomas still fighting. It is interesting some officers did not have a high opinion of Dana before, and most would realize to be what he was, a spy for the Lincoln administration. The irony I don't think is lost that the only unit who would be realistically able to turn the tide on the 20th was derailed in their mission by this individual. Further north, the situation was becoming confusing. John Bell Hood had been given tactical command of the Confederate attack in the center. Longstreet would remain at the Brotherton Farm, but crucially, he did not name his successor to Hood, which is going to lead to promos here shortly. Longstreet, I have seen it surmised, was not expecting success so soon, but seeing that he had it, effectively thought his part of the day was over. While Longstreet is given some credit for putting together his attack formation stacked to better utilize the terrain, his performance on the day is generally lacking. There's plenty of evidence to suggest that instead of tactically forming up this line for the assault, Longstreet actually did it out of necessity. He wasn't going to be able to attack in long lines, and he would have done so if he had that kind of terrain, but obviously the wooded areas was not going to allow that, so he kind of stumbles upon Having this uh, attack that could have increased weight. Johnson's command would push on to the northern part of the Dyer Farm where John Mendenhall created his Grand Battery. McNair's men, who at this point were without Evander McNair, that officer being wounded, Fulton's Tennessee regiments and Suggs with his mixed regiments were reformed. In addition, Law's command, now commanded by William Perry, after James Sheffield's wounding, were ready to renew the offensive. Mendenhall's line was solid, although it lacked significant infantry support. The 13th Michigan and 26th Ohio would gather as many men as they could and stand with the batteries. The artillery was resolved to try to cut down as many revs as they could before withdrawing. Once Suggs was able to turn their flank, however, that prospect went from slim to none. Many of the batteries would fire double canister in a last act of defiance. Some 18 guns were captured, and many of those making the stand were no longer able to be formed once the battle was over, due to loss in men and material. Now the assault grounded to a temporary halt. Jerome Robertson and the Texas Brigade tracked north up the Lafayette Road. The remaining Confederates were resolved to try to support them. Longstreet was called for additional help from Bragg. Robertson, who had been concerned with the two regiments from Croxton on his flank, would be moving in the relative direction of Snodgrass Hill, which is not really a hill, but rather part of Horseshoe Ridge. On that ridge were reforming units, and also where James Negley had been placed, making a reserve. Crucially, though, Thomas Wood had stopped Charles Harker's brigade nearby, ready for action. Harker would command the 65th Ohio, along with the 125th, under Emerson Updike whose regiment would hence be known as the Tigers. They would move forward to meet the Texans. Robertson's line was described by one of his colonels as disorderly, and so would Reel having been hit in the mouth by the Buckeyes. Additionally, the repulse of the Texans opened the flank of Law's brigade, which threw them back. John Bell Hood would ride into this fray. He had been trying to direct the rambling Confederate units, but stopped to rally his old command. In doing so, he would be hit in the leg, which not only would result in amputation, but also his removal from the field. Hood had not been fully recovered from his wound at Gettysburg, and now he was on the shelf yet again. But remember that crucially, Longstreet had not set a clear chain of command, nor was he on the field to take over. This is also unfortunate given the decision James Negley makes. Negley, who was ill during the battle, decides inexplicably to leave the field at this point. Not only does he leave himself, but he also takes a couple of regiments and batteries with him. These batteries could have been instrumental in the defense of Thomas at Snodgrass Hill. This departure is perhaps because he cannot get in touch with the Rosecrans, but he could have tried to get in touch with his Corps Commander Thomas, who was still on the field. Had Hood been able to form up his command, he could have maybe dealt a crippling blow to the army of the Cumberland. As it was, Joe Kershaw and Bushrod Johnson would debate what to do. Johnson was in favor of moving to Horseshoe Ridge, but Kershaw was ready to deal a blow to Harker. Kershaw was the ranking general by commission date, so he would move with his South Carolinians and Humphrey's Mississippians on the Federals. Now, we are a little late in the war to have confusion over uniforms, but this is an interesting case. We have an account of the attack by the South Carolinians. It was about noon when we flanked into the field and heard from a, and heard from a party of jubilant officers that the center and right wing of the Federal army had been smashed and driven from the field. Although our throats were parched, we raised a great rebel shout. But when we got into the field and faced north, we saw something that looked ugly. There facing us was a federal line of battle much longer than our own. We could see no other Confederate troops near us, although we knew Humphrey's brigade of our division was somewhere to our right in the woods. But we lost no time. Kershaw gave immediate orders to advance and attack the Federals in our front, and the whole brigade did so enthusiastically. After one volley, the Federals gave way and fell back up a sort of knob, which was the north end of the field. The top of this knob was covered by dense woods, which went back a short distance to a depression, on the bottom of which an old road ran east to west. From the north side of the old road, another and higher wooded hill rose up, and where afterwards this was called Snodgrass Hill, famous as being the scene of the hardest, longest, and most bloody part of the Battle of Chickamauga. Now Harker's command is joined by survivors of Beale's regiments and surprised to see what they thought was blue, but rather these were dark gray this would be British-made uniforms complete with light blue trousers. In addition, they had never seen the battle flags of the Army of Northern Virginia before. George Thomas believed that these men were actually part of Sheridan's command. As a result, he requested his regiments to wave their flags. Well, the Palmetto Staters believed this to be a challenge by the Yankees, so they advanced to within 100 yards before opening up a heavy fire upon them. Harker's commands would hold their ground for a time, but Kershaw and Humphreys would outflank them and force them to withdraw. Harker would then reform his command on Snodgrass Hill. As we mentioned in the quote, Snodgrass Hill would be mostly the focus of the rebel attacks for the remainder of the fight. Thomas's command still held around Kelly Field from their strong lines. Resistance in the South would cease. Harker's action was key though, in that it stopped the potential thrust on Horseshoe Ridge before Brandon could form a good line of defense. Criniton would soon quit the field, actually having requested assistance from Rosecrans as he was retreating back to Chattanooga. Brandon would have a patchwork of defenders to use against Kershaw and Humphreys. Horseshoe Ridge we should mention is not actually a horseshoe, but really just three hills. Hill 1 is where the Snodgrass House is located and where Harker's Command sat. Reportedly, Opdyke and the 125th would exclaim they would hold the hill or be sent to heaven from it. The 21st Ohio of Sirwell's Brigade had originally supported Harker in their brush with the Texans, but set up on Hill 3, which was the extreme right of this new line. Hill 2 would be manned by the survivor of Stanley's Brigade and Croxton's men in the center, which by this time was commanded by William Hayes. We have an account of the defense of the hill from a member of Croxton's command. General Thomas sat upon his horse about halfway up the hill behind which we were, intently watching the events as they occurred. Several attempts were made by the Confederates to take this hill, but failed. Staff officers were constantly reporting to General Thomas from other portions of the field. In doing so, they were obliged to ride uphill through a space of around 20 yards wide in full range of the enemy sharpshooters. We knew they were there because we heard the music of the little missiles as they passed harmlessly by. General Thomas, as he seemed to know about their presence, as he bore a charmed life, as he just kept out of the range. But these staff officers, as they rode up to him, had to pass over the ground covered by them. Many a blanched face did I see cross this dangerous ground. After several attempts of the Rebs to take this hill, it seems they had determined to have it, for they came again with an increased force and apparently were on the verge of success. Our artillery support gave way and came scampering down our our side of the hill. General Thomas had not ceased his vigilance. He saw it all, and in a moment he drew his sword, rose in his stirrups, and rode amongst his men, shouting to them to go back, go back, this hill must be held at all hazards. Riding on up to the top with his sword flashing in the light, and his face expressive of determination, his words acted like magic. The men turned again to the front, and with shouts regained their positions. Like an avalanche, they swept down upon the advancing and almost victorious enemy and drove them back. Thus, this important position was saved. I was told that the infantry supporting the battery was composed of stragglers, men who had been separated from their commands during the day. They were unofficered and strangers to each other, and while they respected officers in general, there was no one who would wade in deep except for Pat Thomas. It was he and he alone who saved that point at that time. Stanley had also been wounded, and so his command passed to Edwin Stoughton. Colonel Moses Walker, who had previously been placed under arrest, would do well in organizing shattered commands. The 21st would have their own dramatic 20th Maine-like scenario play out as they engaged the South Carolinians. It helped that a good portion of this command was armed with Colt-repeating carbines, and had been given extra rounds. Kershaw would be rebuffed in his initial attempt. Richard Kirkland, who... You might remember as being the man who gave wounded Union troops water at Fredericksburg would fall in these fights. Humphreys, having performed well on the second day at Gettysburg and recently having taken over command of the Magnolia Staters, would be indecisive in meeting the entrenching enemy of Harker's command on Hill 1. As a result, he would fall back without informing his division commander, Kershaw. Longstreet, though, had shifted Hyman's command to reinforce the attackers. Old Pete had found out of Hood's wounding and would be more active in events. Johnson, in the meantime, had reinforced Fulton and Suggs and would shift these regiments and attempt to flank the enemy. These brigades would be barreling in toward Hill 3 and the Yankee right. In one of the more dramatic moments of the battle, Thomas would spy dust moving on his position from the north. If they were rebels, he would be in serious trouble. But rather than Southerners, these men were two brigades of Steedman's division and Gordon Granger's Reserve Corps. We have a colorful account of Granger getting to the battlefield. Shortly before 10 o'clock, calling my attention to a great column of dust moving from our front toward the point from which came the sound of the battle, he said, They are concentrating over there. That is where we ought to be. The Corps flag marked his headquarters in an open field near the Ringle Road. He walked up and down in front of the flag, nervously pulling his beard. Once stopping, he said, Why the blank does Rosecrans keep me here? There's nothing in front of us now. There's the battle, pointing in the direction of Thomas. Every moment, the sound of battle grew louder, while the many columns of dust rolling together, here mingled with the smoke that hung over the scene. At eleven o'clock with Granger, I climbed a high hayrick nearby. He sat there for ten minutes, listening and watching. Then Granger jumped up, thrust his glass into his case, and exclaimed with an oath, I'm going to Thomas, orders or no. And if you go, I replied, it may bring disaster to the army, and you, a court-martial. There's nothing in our front now but ragtag bobtail cavalry, he replied. Don't you see Bragg is piling his army on Thomas? I'm going to his assistance. We quickly climbed down the hayrick, and going to Steedman, Granger ordered him to move his command over there pointing toward the place from which came the sound of battle. Before half past eleven o'clock, Steedman's command was in motion. Granger with his staff and escort rode in advance. Steedman, after accompanying them a short distance, rode back to the head of his own column. Thomas was nearly four miles away. The day had now grown very warm, yet the troops marched rapidly over a narrow road, which was covered ankle-deep with dust that rose in suffocating clouds. Completely enveloped in it, the moving column swept along like a desert sandstorm. Two miles from the point of starting and three-quarters of a mile to the left of the road, the enemy skirmishers and a section of artillery opened up on us from an open field. This force had worked around Thomas's left and was then partly in his rear. Granger halted to feel them. Soon becoming convinced it was only a large party of observation, he again started to calm and push rapidly forward. A little further on, we were met by a staff officer sent by General Thomas to discover whether we were friends or enemies. He did not know whence friends could be coming, and the enemy appeared to be approaching from all directions. All of this shattered army of the Cumberland left on the field was with Thomas, but not more than one-fourth of the men of the army who went into battle at the opening were there. Thomas's loss and killed and wounded during the two days had been dreadful. As his men dropped out, his line was contracted to half its length. Now its flanks were bent back, conforming to ridges shaped like a horseshoe. Now, Granger had been left to secure the road in the direction of Chattanooga, but they were also responsible for supporting Thomas if necessary. Some would say this was a good example of Rosecrans' lack of confidence. Nathan Bedford Forrest continues to have one of the more disappointing performances of the war and does little to block these men from reaching Thomas. In fact, it would be these guys that Granger would call bobtail cavalry or ragamuffin cavalry in the process of bypassing them it would remain to be seen if they would get to the field in time. Kershaw was preparing for another try at the ridge. William Oates and his 15th Alabama would find their way in the middle of the line. Oates would rashly get the regiments around him to charge, resulting in another bloody repulse of the hill. Again, the 2nd South Carolina, who had charged at the Rose Farm at Gettysburg, would be locked in their struggle with the 21st Ohio. Lt. Col. Dwellis Stoughton was the target of South Carolinian sharpshooters and reportedly exclaimed to a fellow officer, The damn cuss is firing at me, before being hit and mortally wounded. There would also be a harrowing account of a member of the 21st having premonitions of death, saying that his head hurt before being hit there by a ball. In the command of a major, the 21st would repel the most recent attempt, but another, more powerful blow lay on the horizon. Johnson's two attacking brigades would be joined by Patton Anderson of Heinemann's Division. Since Heinemann had been wounded in the neck, his command would be turned over. Anderson's Mississippi regiments would be geared for an attempt on the 21st, an entire brigade's weight. Additionally, Fulton and Suggs would have their brigades extending the Rebel line. It was here that Steedman's untried but fresh troops would be plugged. Their spoiling attack would break the Confederate momentum. Johnson's troops, though, would have been engaged in many places on the field, and so they were quite fatigued at this point. We have an account from Whitaker's brigade as they come onto the field. It was a trying time for our regiment when the line in front fell back over it, but it stood nobly. After a short time of quiet, firing commenced again on our right. It was tremendous, almost deafening. The roar of musketry was incessant, and at intervals of two or three seconds, it was increased by the roar of cannon. The conflict here was terrific, first one side driving, then the other. At last the rebels began to get the advantage and slowly drove our men back. As the line on our right gave way, they began to come on us and at last came on with us full force. Our regiment was lying rather too far back on the crest of the hill, I think, so that we could not see them till they were pretty near on to us. The first onset was so impetuous and our line on our right falling back enabled them to come in on our right and pour in an enfilading fire so that our regiment gave way a little and the right had to swing around to meet the enfilading fire. We stood here for some time when the rebels came on with such a force that we were obliged to retire. We fell back slowly, to a sort of hollow which ran up and down the hill. The 22nd Michigan was on our left, more toward the top of the hill. Here we stopped and from which we made charge after charge but were driven back to it each time by superior numbers. The question was now anxiously asked by everyone why don't we get reinforcements? The 89th and 21st Ohio and 22nd Michigan seemed to have been forgotten and left without support or assistance, and I don't suppose our whole force amounted to 500 men. In our regiment, our men were nearly half killed or wounded, and our ammunition nearly gone, and some of the companies entirely gone, and they were taking the cartridges out of the boxes of the killed and wounded. It was a fearful place. The musketry fire was terrible. We were exposed to very little cannonading. In our last charge, they fired one round of grape at us. Those who had been in several heavy fights say they never saw the musketry so heavy as it was here. We had now been in the fight for some three hours. Our men were becoming discouraged and disheartened, and night or reinforcements were more than anxiously looked for and prayed for, the more so it was pretty generally thought that we were surrounded. The 22nd Michigan would charge around the 21st Ohio and smash into Anderson's flank, extinguishing his attack as well. While the Buckeyes and Wolverines tend to be rivals, the Ohio men must have been glad to see their Michigan counterparts. A member of the 22nd would write that by the time they rolled past, the Ohio regiment was just a thin line of men. For their efforts, however, the 22nd would suffer heavy casualties as their charge had exposed their right flank to Johnson's Confederates. Steedman's attack would be dissuaded from further pushes by Confederate artillery. Tired though they were, the infantry also reformed. In a short amount of time, the Union Reserve Brigades had lost some 600 men. General Steedman was key in studying his troops. When asked if he had any last words, he reportedly responded to make sure they spell my name right. He would need to organize his men into a good defense, especially when faced with additional rebels on the way. Kershaw would try his third and final attempt at the ridge, this meeting the same fate as the others. Vanderveer's brigade had arrived and replaced some of the embattled regiments on the front from Croxton's brigade. The Seventh South Carolina would gain some ground, actually reaching the enemy breastworks, but with no support, be forced to retire. Its color bearer would launch the colors back down the hill toward the rebel comrades so they did not fall into enemy hands. Once again, the rebels were victims of not being able to support their attacks. A case-in-point example is that Johnson would renew his attack without Kershaw. This time, he had the additional help from Zach Days and Manigault from Hindman's command. McNair's brigade had reformed, and he would see about flanking the Federal line. The 96th Illinois and 121st Ohio would perform especially well in spoiling attacks that would shut the door on the newest attempt. The terrain was not conducive to their flanking move, and so Johnson's rebels would once again withdraw. While these attacks floundered on the hills, stained with blood, Longstreet would confer with Bragg, who was generally negative about the battle. While McCook and Crennan had been broken, they were allowed to escape back toward Chattanooga, which had ruined Bragg's grand plan. Thomas and his corps still held Horseshoe Ridge and Snodgrass Hill, and they had been reinforced. In addition, his salient still stood where it had roughly dealt Claiborne and Breckenridge heavy casualties from earlier in the day. It is curious Longstreet or Bragg did not exploit the enemy lines, because if you look at a map, there certainly was one. This is more than likely because the wooded terrain did not allow them to see such an opening. On the flip side, for the Union, there were no more troops to come. James Garfield had sent word to Rosecrans that if the rest of the army was to return to support their comrades still fighting, it might still be possible to win. We know that James Garfield was heavily into politics, so this could have been the kind of dispatch that he wrote in order to be publicized to assist in his future political career. But the sentiment was still there. Had there been any kind of troops like, say, Negley had stayed in place, or any kind of reorganization, then things might have been pretty different. Rosecrans, though, would order a move back toward Chattanooga, with any Federals that were already on their way to continue in their direction. George Thomas would realize that he would not be able to hold on. Granger and his reserve corps had brought some much-needed ammunition, but even this was running low. Preparations would be made to retreat in an orderliest fashion as possible. While this was still being contemplated, Buckner's remaining division under Preston arrived to make its attempt at Snodgrass Hill. Archibald Gracie and John H. Kelly would lead their mostly untested conscriptions against the federal lines. I have an account of Kelly's attack. The last rays of the setting sun had kissed the autumn foliage when we stepped into open ground. The boom of artillery increases. The rattle of musketry is steady, aye, incessant and deadly. The sulfurous smoke has increased until almost stifling. Only 50 yards of space separates us from the gallant Mississippians we are here to support. They have clung onto the ridge with a death grip. But their last cartridge has been fired at the enemy, and their support being at hand, these last sturdy soldiers of Longstreet's Corps are ordered to retire. Simultaneously, we are ordered forward. As the Mississippians retired, the deep-volume shouts of the enemy told us plainer than could words that the enemy thought they had routed them. Oh, how differently we regarded the situation. If they could have seen them as we, halting, kneeling, lying down, raging themselves in columns of files... "'beyond the large trees to enable us to get at the enemy "'with an unbroken front, each man as we pass, "'throwing a cap in the air into the overhanging foliage "'in honor of our presence. "'I imagine that shouts would have been suppressed. "'Steady in the center, hold your fire, hold the colors back. "'The center advanced too rapidly. "'We are clear of our friends now, only enemy of our front, "'and we meet face-to-face on a spur of Mission Ridge, "'which extends through the Snodgrass farm, "'and we are separated by eighty yards.' Thud. Down goes Private Robertson. He turned and smiled and died. Thud. Corporal Gray shot through the neck. Get to the rear, said I. Thud. 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 Wolf. Michael. The Gallant Thompson. Thud. 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 Courageous Oxley. The knightly Desha. And duty levy Cummings. And thus it goes. The fallen increase and are to be counted by the hundreds. The pressure is fearful, but the sand digger is here to say. Forward. Forward. Ring out all along the line. We move slowly to the front. There's now sixty yards between us, the enemy is scorned to fly. He gives us back a few paces, he retires a little more, but still faces us, and loads as he backs away. We're now in the midst of his dead and dying, but he stands as do the sturdy oaks about him. We all have all that is possible for human to bear. Our losses are fearful, and each moment some comrade passes to the unknown. At last, Humphrey's Mississippians have replenished boxes and are working around on our right. Triggs Virginians are uncovering to the left. I feel a shock about my left breast, spin like a top in the air, and come down in a heap. I know not how long before came the sounds, forward, forward, forward. I rise on my elbow. Look, look, there they go, all at breakneck speed, the bayonet at charge. The firing appears to suddenly cease for about five seconds, then arose that do-or-die expression. That maniacal maelstrom of sound, that penetrating... "'rasping, shrieking, blood-curdling noise "'that could be heard for miles on earth "'and whose volumes reached the heavens. "'Such an expression as never yet came "'from the throats of sane men, "'but from men whom the seething blast "'of an imaginary hell would not check "'while the sound lasted. "'The Battle of Chickamauga is won.'" Gracie would attack Harker and was repulsed initially. His men were also fired upon by Hazen's brigade, which had pulled out of their line and joined the defense of the hills. Hazen was always an enterprising officer, so he was looking for something to do that could get some laurels. This also shows that Hazen while he was in line at the salient doesn't really suffer too many casualties, so he is kind of twiddling his thumbs and pulls his men back. So it gives you an idea of just how easily those initial attacks were repulsed because they were so unorganized. Kelly would veer his brigade away, moving toward Hill 3. After being hit in the flank that caused the rout of one of his regiments, the young officer actually managed to gain a footing on Hill 3 when the 21st Ohio pulled back. Likewise, the 43rd Alabama of Gracie's brigade would be able to hold onto some ground on Hill 1. At this point, ammunition was almost exhausted, and so the Union troops would give ground. Kershaw had made an initial attempt a little after 1 p.m., it was 5 p.m. by the time Preston's division grabbed their small piece of the high ground. While Kelly was able to hold, Gracie would receive no help and eventually withdraw. Bushrod Johnson's worn-out brigades would try one more time on their front, reduced by this point to maybe some 1,800 men. Some of Hyman's regiments would join them, and in so doing, push back Steedman, his men having exhausted their ammunition as well. As darkness started to set in, Trigg's brigade finally arrived and would attempt with Kelly to push the remaining Federals off the hill. By this point in the fighting, the Union troops had mostly withdrawn. Some regiments were either left by mistake, in the smoke, in the dark, or had been ordered to serve as a rearguard. As a result, the 21st Ohio, 89th Ohio, and 22nd Michigan would mostly be captured by Trigg and Kelly. The 21st was reduced to this point to 80 men, some of whom escaped through the woods. Reportedly, they had called out in the darkness to the body of men before them, and been told that they were Jeff Davis' troops, duped by the fact that they were referring to the Confederate President rather than the Indiana General. The Battle of Horseshoe Ridge was over. While we have played out that section of the fighting, there is still the bulge in Thomas's line to deal with. The divisions of Reynolds, Palmer, Johnson, and Baird had sat in their lines while the Confederate efforts shifted to Snodgrass Hill and Horseshoe Ridge. Sharpshooting had proven deadly, with Colonel Edward King being killed by a well-placed shot, so it was not without its perils. Units had attempted to fill the blank space between the bulge and the hills, but there was still a sizable gap. Luckily for the Union troops, Polk disobeyed orders to renew the assault, so neither was this found or exploited. Polk did a little feet-dragging, as did Hill, which allowed Thomas to lay out a plan to withdraw, starting with his southernmost units in the area of Reynolds' command. At around 5.30 p.m., Confederates and Stewart's command would jump off on a general assault. They would catch the tail end of Reynolds as he moved out of Kelly Field. Stewart's brigades would fire on the enemy as they made their escape. On the northern end of the line, Reynolds would plow into Little's brigades, which had assembled to attack around the McDonald farm. Govan and Walthaw once again would be forced to retreat, there being no protection for their flanks. Turchin and his men exploited them heavily. It was actually important that this was done because Little could have worked his way in behind the entire remainder of the army. In the process, though, Reynolds would lose his cool and apparently wish to surrender, which was not taken up by the men around him. The withdrawals would be increasingly difficult with Confederate forces converging on the flanks and Clayburn moving in the relative center. These Union troops would also be running low on ammunition, so they would fire sparingly. Fighting withdrawals would be conducted along the line, with King's regulars the last holding their positions. With so much weight upon them, they too would retreat. As darkness was closing in, the Confederates would not pursue. Indeed, many believed the Union army had fallen back to a new line. But, effectively, the Battle of Chickamauga was over. In total, the battle had 34,624 total casualties, making it the second bloodiest affair of the war. 16,170 for the Union and 18,454 for the Confederates. Bragg had finally gained a victory on the battlefield, but as we will soon see, the morale would not improve. Thomas was allowed to escape, just as the remainder of the army had been. Heavy casualties would mar the event. It was Pyrrhus of Epirus who said, If we are victorious in one more battle with the Romans, we shall be utterly ruined. This is where we get Pyrrhic victory from. And if there is any battle we can apply that to, Chickamauga is certainly one of them. And with that, we will close out today. Next week, we will check on on the situation following the Battle of Chickamauga and of course discuss the significance. We will also have some smaller scale affairs, including heading out to Kansas and then to Louisiana. We also need to begin discussing underwater vessels, so if that's something that's up your alley, get excited. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback's always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.